Again, a simple and short verse. If you want to read along, you can. It'll certainly be up on the screen. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I'm going to read it once more because we have time to do that. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, um, what Paul is doing here is he's trying to move us. He's trying to move us in, in a direction. I uh, looked up, I, I had to go back to school and look up Newton's first law of motion. And it's simply this. Any object will not change its motion unless a force acts upon it. Any object will not change its motion unless a force acts upon it. What we have this morning is movement, and Paul has a force to act upon us. Now, motivation, direction, and actions are often things that move us or make things happen. I, I think about my dog, um, Meadow. Meadow is a classic example of an object that will not change her motion unless a force is acted upon her. Meadow will curl up and she'll find a perfect place on the couch, maybe a blanket or so forth, and she'll curl up on that. And Meadow, our dog, will not move. That is... Well, we thank God that you can go and take care of things. I didn't know we'd have this kind of movement. So our dog doesn't move unless there's a sound, a sound that suggests that she's going to get a treat or a tennis ball. Then she might move. She's excited. She'll go after it. The other times she'll move is more of a negative, more of a, oh my goodness, they're going to try and catch me and put me in my crate because they're leaving. So before we can catch her, even though she wasn't moving, she can tell, she sees the signs and she races for going underneath the dining room table with all the chairs. And then it is a game that we always lose. There's another time that she'll move. When one of us happens to be having a hard day, something about her seems to recognize that. We'll sit down on the couch. One of us may sit down and just kind of be sorrowful. And she'll look up and see that. And she'll leave her warmth and comfort to come over and snuggle up to us. There's an action, 
There's a direction, there's a motivation that moves metal. Paul is writing this morning to us to motivate us, to make us move. You know, coaches are famous for motivation to get their players to move. There's the, the classic halftime speeches that are there for the team to rally again and, and go in a new direction, that motivation that comes from a coach. Politicians also use and look to motivate. They, they give a speech to try and turn a country in a new direction. They, they try to find a way to put words together and to, to grab hold of a national spirit to, to move a people to do something new. Teachers, parents, mentors also look to motivate a child a young person, to, to carry on and use their gifts in a way that is beneficial not only to themselves but to others. We understand what it is to motivate. And Paul here is seeking to motivate, to move us. And so the language is, I appeal to you, therefore, that appealing is an urging, it's an exhorting, it's an encouraging. It is the motivation that Paul is working from. And he has been building to this point. We are in the 12th chapter. He's been building all the rest of the letter to this point to then make us make a change of course, a new action. That's been his work. Up to this point, he's been working and building to this action. And that appeal, that urging, that encouraging, that exhorting, all comes from simply this. God's mercies. God's mercies. The football team can have the halftime speech and hear the, let's win one for the Gipper. We've heard that phrase before, haven't we? Even if we're not familiar with sports, we know that that's a classic halftime motivation. Or the politician, President Kennedy says, we're going to put a man on the moon and rallies a whole country to do something that we could only look at before. Paul is working to move us, and that motivation comes from the mercies of God. And before I get into the mercies, I want to make something clear. The people to be moved is us. We are the ones to whom Paul is writing. Oh, you might sit there and say, well, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. Oh, yes. But he was very clear. I appeal to you. And not just to you, but to you, brothers and sisters. It says brothers up there, but that's a classic translation of Delphos, which is the same way as if you and I were to go back 20, 30 years and someone would use the word and mankind. And we knew mankind represented both men and women. In the same way in the Greek, Adelphos represented both brothers and sisters. It was everyone. 
In particular, it was everyone who's become a follower of Jesus Christ. So it was written not only to the church in Rome, but it was preserved and carried and written down from sheet of papyrus to sheet of papyrus to finally manuscripts and finally codexed and kept all the way down for us as well because it's written for us as well. We cannot lose fact that the appeal is to us. It is addressed to us. It is not something for us to sit by as participants watching the game or sitting on the sidelines hoping that NASA figures it out. It is written to us. We are the players. We are the ones who are meant to figure it out. We are the brothers and sisters that are knit together because Jesus Christ has made us one people made us into one group in which the love of Christ is meant to spread among each of us for one another. We are brothers and sisters. And that imagery is meant to convey something stronger than friend. It is meant to convey the most positive understanding of brother and sister. Oh, sure, there's time when brothers don't like brothers and sisters don't like sisters. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about that, that bond that goes so deep because we're the same litter mates. We're in the same understanding. We've been through something together. We are one. And Paul is writing this appeal to us, and that appeal goes back, all those previous 11 chapters, all to the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Paul has been building an argument, an argument in many ways that can escape our modern understanding. But I want to invite you into some of his argument so you can get a sense of the depth and the weight and how important it is to him. We may need to remember that Paul was a Pharisee. Not only was he a Pharisee, someone who is learned in the law of God, but he was at the top of his class. Not only was he at the top of his class, young and upstart, wonderful Pharisee, but he trained under the best and brightest one of all time. Not only that, he came from a tribe that had incredible honor and respect. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew his stuff. He's the kind of guest speaker that you come in, that comes in and is, you know, has the knowledge that nobody else has. He is learned in the law of God. And the law of God was a gift to the people, to the Jews, a gift for how they should live life, how they should follow God and what it was to follow God and how to do that and, and what are all the different ways of knowing God's word, the incredible gift that he had given to the people. Because this people, the Jews, were set aside as a blessing. They were God's blessing to the rest of the world. They were the ones who were to carry and understand God's gift. But as is natural to do as humans, we always want to know where the rules are, where the barriers are, where the fence is. Because we want to do everything in our life that we want to do 
And we want to know where the boundaries are so we can still do what we want to do without getting in trouble. We want to know where those borders are. I love it that uh, long ago, uh, Abraham is with God and God is going to go wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah and lets Abraham know this. And Abraham is traveling with them and Abraham asks the question, but what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Are you still going to wipe it out? And God says, well, if there are 50 righteous, no, I won't. They walk a little further and Abraham can't help but ask, what if there are 40 righteous people? Will you wipe it out? No, if there are 40 righteous, I will not wipe it out. Cautiously, a little later, what about if there are 30 righteous? For 30, I will not wipe it out. What about 20? What about 10? And what's fascinating to me about the telling of the tale is it doesn't end with a precise number. It just cuts off. But it gets to that human drive in each of us that we want to know where the barriers are, where the boundaries are, how we can stay in and yet do everything we want to do. And so it's easy to start to look at the law, the gift of God that is meant to point out all our failings. It is easy for it to start to become something that we do in order to be right that we do in order to make God take us in. So what does that have to do with the mercies of God? All the different rituals and actions throughout every day that the law gave, that the Pharisees built a fence around, all of that suddenly was in jeopardy when God allowed the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to come in. When God simply had mercy on people who had nothing to do with God, except that they had heard the good news that God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for them. And they accepted that fact. The Jews were scrambling. The, the Jews that believed that the Messiah had come were still scrambling, trying to figure out what do these people that aren't Jews have to do? What, and there was this real challenge. And all of it just magnified for Paul how great God's mercy is, that God's steadfast love truly does endure forever. Steadfast love is another word for mercy. It's hesed, the same word that is used for mercy as well in the Old Testament. Paul is suddenly able to see God's mercies are simply God's to give. They are not ours to create or make by what we do. And so he starts to ask the question, what does this mean about the Jews then? Have they been written off? He says, well, of course not. But for a time being, they're blinded so that others can come to know and believe. But with a warning, a warning for us who aren't Jews, a warning that we, now that we've been grafted into the tree, that we might start looking down at those 
who were previously in the tree, that we might start feeling good about ourselves. And Paul says, don't make the same mistake. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's mercy. God has given us grace through Jesus Christ. Grace is a free gift that we don't deserve, could never earn, can never repay. It is God's gift to us through Jesus Christ that he came and died in our place, that he took on our sins, all that is wrong about us, everything, that he took it on himself so that we might live holy before God, that we might be made right before God. God's incredible mercy. And Paul's been building this argument and he gets to this place finally in chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you therefore, therefore tying it to everything that's come before, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, and I appeal to you out of the very mercies of God, what God has done. And that word mercy here in this case is different and it says out of God's compassion, out of his mercy, out of his pity for us. God looked and saw that we could not do anything for ourselves, that we were unable to save ourselves from ourselves, that we were unable to make ourselves right before God. It simply could not happen. And God looked at that and rather than shaking his head and saying, oh, what a mess they are and oh, how they continue to run from me and walk away from me and continue to go on paths that I'd rather not have, God instead looks down on mercy with mercy and loves us and gives up the greatest in his son Jesus. I hope that you can start to see that this becomes a pivotal verse for Paul. The motivation is to say, look, if you need motivation, if you need to be able to have something to look at for change in you. Look at God's mercy to you. Jesus gives an example of that in one of his parables. He gives a parable of a, of a servant who is, owes 10,000 talents to the king. And the servant can't pay that back. Well, the reason the servant can't pay it back we can't translate the old language until we start to understand that 10,000 talents was the equivalent of saying this man owed to the king 20 lifetimes of labor. If you figured the average labor of 30 to 40 years, everything that that would take, and then magnifying that 20 times over, that's what this servant owed to the king. It was impossible to pay back. You couldn't do it. It's like us when we scoff, when someone gets, you know, so many life sentences, we say, well, how does that work? But in this case, the story is being told that Jesus is saying, is saying there's a servant that owes this much, and the obvious scenario is there's no way for that servant to pay it back but instead the king looks and has mercy on the servant and forgives the debt 
Doesn't say, well, just pay me a little bit after time. Doesn't say, well, I'll knock off a portion and make it somewhat doable. Doesn't say, I tell you what, it'll only be one lifetime that you owe me. No, the king knocks off the entire debt. Paul says, in view of that kind of mercy, that's our motivation for change. In Jesus' own tale, he says that that very servant goes off and then tries to collect money from a fellow servant that amounts to maybe six months' salary, shakes him up, puts him in jail. The other friend's servants are so horrified by that action because they know what he was forgiven, and yet he can't forgive this person that obviously owes him a lot, but he was forgiven so much more. That's Jesus' call to us. Look at you have been given so much mercy. Can you not forgive others? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. And that's the motivation. And then there's direction and action. Direction, in this case, is, a, is an outlook, a way of looking at things. Direction, you know, when, when uh, you put in your phone how to get somewhere, you know, you, you put in, well, how do I get to Grand Rapids? We may know, but you put it in your phone and it'll give you three different directions. It depends what you want. Do you want the most scenic route? Do you want to get there the quickest? Do you want the shortest mileage? How do you want to get there? What's the direction that you want? It'll even redirect you if there are accidents along the way. Direction. You know, in life, we often live direction with metaphors. We use metaphors to describe or get at our direction. What do I mean by that? Well, metaphors have a way of saying more than the literal facts. They have a way of also conveying the emotions, the gut realities. They have a way of conveying a lot more in a few words than it would take us to write all of it out literally. We have some basic metaphors that we play with right now in our culture. They're kind of always prevalent. One that you see a lot of times in sports, you know, the whole sports season's heating up again, and so you'll hear a lot of image around battles, right? A lot of war imagery. I still remember opening, I grew up on the other side of the state, closer to Flint and Detroit. And over there back in that time, there used to be a lot more Catholic high schools. And I still remember opening the paper to the sports section and reading, you know, that um, blessed mother slaughters holy child or something like that. And it sounds horrifying, but they were talking about schools and in a football game. No one was thinking twice about the names. We use language of battle to sometimes convey what's going on. The person steps back to throw the long pass. What do we call it? The bomb. Another metaphor we use in life is a metaphor all around health and health care. We talk about things in a strange way. How many of us have talked about, you know, our car needs repairs, and we say to someone, you know, yeah, the car is going in for repairs. It's, it's having open heart surgery. What do we mean by that? 
we mean that it's going to cost us a lot and that it's going to be work on the engine itself. It's the whole engine's being taken apart. It's, it's open heart surgery. It's the big time. It's not just to have a, uh, you know, an alternator replaced or an oil change. It's, it's big stuff. We use metaphors of healthcare all the time to explain something deeper. A metaphor that was very common in Paul's day. A metaphor that could be borrowed for all manner of understanding was a metaphor of sacrificial worship. Temple sacrifices. It was a metaphor that was borrowed for so many items. And so when Paul is looking to appeal to and motivate us out of God's mercy and then to change us, to make us have a movement of direction, he uses a direction image that has to do with the temple sacrifices. An image that was common to everyone, whether you were a Jew and had one temple and the sacrifices that took place there, or you were in the Greek world and a Roman and, or among the Greeks and, and you worshiped in all manner of temples and all manner of gods, that temple sacrifice was a very open and common image. It was a metaphor that was just easily available to grab hold of and understand in an instant, not only what he was talking about, but all the emotional value as well. And so through the rest of this, part of the action that he's giving us comes in the form of a direction instead of choosing the fastest route, the shortest route, the quickest route, the most scenic route, Paul uses a metaphor to carry the value of the direction that he's giving us. And that metaphor is sacrificial temple worship. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, out of the mercies of God to present yourselves or as it says here, your bodies. And sometimes we, we hear that body and we think justice. He means all of who we are, everything that we are, our thinking, our, 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 all our emotions, our bodies, our everything, our hearts, our minds, all that we are. He says, present your whole self. Present, that is to offer, to give over. Now, when we give presents to people, we sometimes indicate they're present by the way we wrap them up, right? We wrap them up and we tie them with a nice bow or some of us who are very inept at wrapping and doing bows, we just find a nice bag and put it in a bag and put some tissue on top and say, here. But we're showing that it's a present. We're finding some way to wrap it up and Paul is giving an image of wrapping up in the sacrificial system that was very clear. He says, present yourself, your whole self, as a sacrifice. It's the temple worship, a sacrifice. In this case, it's a living sacrifice, which is a radical change 
from the sacrificial system. A sacrifice was giving something to the gods, or in the Hebrew God, giving an animal in place of yourself, that animal's blood for your blood, that animal was sacrificed in place of yourself. Sacrifices had a broad meaning, but the whole point was giving to God something that cost you or was in the place of you. Paul is saying, hey, instead of giving something of yours or some monetary value that's translated into an animal, or instead of giving an animal in place of yourself, it is time to give yourself. And of course, in the temple system, all the animals that were given were slaughtered. They were, they were killed. And Paul changes the image, again, because he's borrowing a metaphor and he's modifying it. He says, to now give yourself as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's an ongoing sacrifice. It's not a one-time cost. How much does this cost? It's an ongoing giving over of oneself completely to God. It matches what Jesus was saying all along. Those who would save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will save it. It's a giving over of ourselves completely. Out of the mercy of God, God has given us mercy, delivered us from death, delivered us from destruction, delivered us from being forever separated from God through his son, Jesus Christ. Like the servant who's been forgiven the multiple lifetimes of work, now we are being called to offer ourselves fully to God. Fully. In every way. That's the action. The action of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is truly allowing him to be our Lord and Savior. That when he says, go, we go. The call that Paul has been building from 11 chapters all the way to now is building to this point to call us into action, to give ourselves over freely and fully to God. My wife reminded me, just this morning that there's an old saying, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. It's a challenge to give ourselves over fully and freely, to give over all of ourselves, And that's why Paul follows up, still using the metaphor, he says, you know, to present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable. Again, two sacrificial terms that were immediately understood. Holy, that's that word. We think of holy as pristine and pure, and it is, but it means to be set apart. Animals that were to be sacrificed were already set apart. They were put in a separate pen. There's a fair amount of understanding that a, a, a large bar, amount of the sacrificial lambs for the temple service were being cared for down in Bethlehem. There was a region that took care of the sacrificial animals. They were set apart. Paul is reminding us that as living sacrifices that we are actually being set apart for God's service. And this goes all the way back. 
God, from the very beginning in Genesis, sets apart Abraham and then his family that they will be a blessing. Jacob, his grandson, becomes the one who is the father of the 12 boys and then the 12 tribes of Israel. They are being set apart. Of those tribes, one of the tribes is later set apart to take care of the temple worship. And of that tribe for which temple worship is going to take place, a family within that tribe, the house of Aaron, is set apart to be the priests to do the operations of the temple worship. All along, God is separating and setting apart a people. And Paul is taking all of that image, all of that understanding. Remember, he's a Pharisee steeped in the law and he's saying God is now setting apart those of us who've received mercy we are being set apart we are a living sacrifice to God it's not just about whether we have our individual freedoms and get to do what we want to do it's now being set apart for a purpose we now are the ones carrying the blessings of God to be given to others We are now the ones carrying the grace that's been given to us to show that grace to others. The forgiveness that's been given to us to show that forgiveness to others. We have been set apart, holy, as Paul writes, and acceptable. Now that's the catchy one. (laughs) Paul is catching us. Paul knows exactly the way our hearts work because his heart is like ours. Did you know in the temple system with the sacrificial lambs and the rams and the bulls, there was a whole bunch of rules about what they had to be. They couldn't have any blemish. They had to have all their body parts working really well. Why? Well, I'm in a farming area. You understand, if the taxes to God are one-tenth of everything you have, would you give your best ox, your best ram, your best sheep, the one that propagates the best, would you give that over? No, you might want to give the one that is deformed and not able to. It's only one, you know, only give one out of ten, give that one. The acceptable component comes back to the laws from the very beginning where God demands the best. Not the ones that are thrown off and are no good. And in this imagery, Paul is saying, look, God wants all of you. God isn't asking for you to give some of your best or three-quarters of your best or to keep over here a little room for yourself. No. Holy and acceptable is to give all of ourselves, to give the best of what we are, not what's left over, to give all and what's best. You can see a lot hangs in this one verse. Out of the mercies of God to present ourselves now as living sacrifices for God, holy and acceptable. And then he says this strange thing. He says, it's your spiritual worship. It's your spiritual worship. That's because we're still in this metaphor of 
uh, of temple sacrifices, um, the words there are actually hard on the translators because they better would be better be translated um, your rational service or your logical service rather than the spiritual worship. That'd probably be a better translation, your rational or logical service. But that would make sense to them. It doesn't make as much sense to us because we're not as familiar with the metaphor of temple worship and temple sacrifices. What, what he's saying is, look, worship Service to God is an everyday, every hour work. The priest that works in the temple system doesn't just work one hour, one day a week. It's who they are. All the work throughout the week is all for that work. It's the logical sense. It makes rational sense. Everything they're doing is for this worship. As Christians, sometimes we limit worship to what we do one hour on Sunday morning. Or sometimes, in my case, one hour and five minutes. Worship is what we do throughout the week. It's our every action. It's everything we say. It's everything we do. And when we start to look at it through that lens, we start to say, ooh, maybe it's not the greatest worship. I didn't have the kindest words for that person that cut me off in the construction zone. Worship is everything we do. If we are a living sacrifice, we are continually in worship. It's our rational, logical service to change. And Paul is in the next two verses going to start to spell out how that looks. But for now, today, we are being called to think of ourselves differently, to think of ourselves as actually in worship all the time at a response to God's great mercies that are new every morning, that they never come to end that they can't be taken away. The mercy that God has given us is done. It can't be removed. God's grace has been given to you through Jesus Christ. And now, because of that, you have been called into a new life, a life of worship and giving yourself over to God over and over and over again. Not for yourself, but for God and for those whom God yet desires to meet with his grace and love. Ours. Ours is a living sacrifice. And the appeal is for us to live that way. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, help us. Help us because you are challenging our paradigms of how we see ourselves. You're challenging us to live wholly differently, to be set apart fully and in every way for you, to give our best to you, to leave nothing back, O oh Lord. Help us. 
Help us so to live. In Jesus' name, amen. by the mercies of God to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. Amen.